see all your smiling faces this morning, all five of you. Uh, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, keep it coming, keep it coming. Um, as I've been preparing for this sermon today, just been reminded of the God's sovereignty, his awesome and inexplicable sometimes mysterious, well, all times mysterious sovereignty in the details of my life, mine and my wife's life, your lives. Um, especially lately as it has related to my daughter, Joya. Later this month, as I was preparing, I'm thinking later this month, it's gonna be the third year of her going home to be with the Lord. And I vividly remember sitting right there in that front row, looking at my daughter's casket, trying desperately to hold it together, crying out to God both inwardly and outwardly as we were singing, Lord, I need you. Please hold me, hold us. I'm not gonna make it, make it through this without you. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know that I can deal with this. And I didn't even know how to describe the this. It was, it was just something other. It was a pain that was inexplicable. And that day, in my sadness, in my desperation, when my world had just been torn and thrown into a deep darkness, there was only one certainty, one certainty in my heart. And that was the only thing I was clinging to. And that is, God, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. And in this, I know you're sovereign. You have to be, because it doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. In order to understand the surety that I have, we're gonna to need to step back about eight years, okay, before Joya's death. Through much anguish, sorrow, and pain, I had learned and come to accept in my heart, I forgot to start my clock, right? So I'm gonna give you guys an extra few minutes, okay? <laughs> I had learned in my heart that our God, our Jehovah, as he worked in the micro details of mine, in your lives, in our lives, he's sovereign, and he will forever be sovereign, regardless of how you feel, what you're going through. God is sovereign, period. Amen. On the 5th of June, 2006, I lay in the bathroom floor in the San Francisco hotel room for what seemed like hours with our daughter barely clinging to life in a hospital a couple miles away. The doctors had told us that she wouldn't survive through the next day without an immediate liver transplant. And with a donor, and without a donor, I should say, she would be dead soon. A deep despair began to settle in my heart and a feeling of desperation a desperation that is indescribable began, began to swell up. 
The helplessness and the anguish, they were overwhelming, consuming. And that evening, I knew that there were many brothers and sisters, literally all over the world, who were praying for us. But I also knew that I, as a father, helpless, I needed to get before God. I needed to meet with him that evening. I needed something to happen. And so I laid on that bathroom floor just crying out to God, begging God in anguish to restore a life to a daughter who was all but dead by giving her, me, Steph, my family, all the friends and brothers and sisters who were praying for her. We needed a miracle and I would not relent. I could not relent. I would soon come to realize that this encounter with God would be more than just about my daughter. Really, it was going to be about my reckoning. In my spirit, I heard God ask, if I take her, will you still love me? Will you still trust me? Will I still be Lord in your life? At first I ignored it, not knowing what, what to think about it. I just, it didn't, it didn't make sense to me at the time. I just ignored it. But those questions, they persisted. I'm not sure how long I tried to ignore or suppress these questions, but I felt the impact not just in my head, but in my very soul, in my very spirit. I began to realize that these painfully direct questions were coming from God. And I realized that there was, there was a battle, a raging battle brewing inside this man. And it was a battle for my faith. It was a struggle for my faith. Indeed, for my trust and my full surrender to God and my Savior. Deep in my heart, I knew who and what I was facing. And it was fearful. It was very fearful. All I could do was cry. I couldn't speak. I'm not sure how long I struggled with the answer to those questions. But when I finally spoke... through the barrage of tears and the moaning that I couldn't explain. These words, which are forever steered in my heart, were the first words to come out. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my strength God, they're failing me, but you are the Lord, the God of my heart and my portion forever. And when those words of scripture came out, I was done. I, it felt like I had fought through a deep, darkness. 
And I prayed, beseeching God with my whole being to please. Again, I said, please spare her, spare us. But if you decide to take her, I will still proclaim you Lord. I will still know that you are the sovereign God. Sharing this part of my life with you, I can't help but think of the sovereignty of God in me, in me, standing here in front of you, bringing forth the word of God. This is an honor which I take very seriously. And so even now, even now as I stand up here, my heart, my soul cries out, Lord, I need you. Holy Spirit, fill me and use me now for your glory and honor. Amen. And uh, I'm really sorry, ladies, if I made you cry and ruin your mascara and your makeup. It was not my intent. It really, really wasn't. Um, as I've been reading and studying the book of Acts, listening to all the sermons in this series, I thought about, again, like I said, the sovereignty of God. I thought about the Jewish Christian martyrs who gave all for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. And I shiver, I mean with goosebumps, as I'm transported back to that evening on the floor in the bathroom in the San Francisco hotel room. I read all of these horrendous events in Paul's life, how Christ himself told Paul how much he would have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Yet, through, through it all, in it all, God was and is working his good and sovereign purpose, his sovereign will, and his will is still being done. Whether you recognize it or not, God's will, God's purpose for your life, for our lives, it's gonna push through. Fighting, ignoring, begging, it's not gonna work. God's sovereign will will be done. As Christians, we will always face circumstances that will either tear us down or take us to the cross where we will always find grace and mercy in our time of need. See, if we see things only from a human perspective, we're gonna grow impatient. We're gonna get bitter. We're gonna get angry and frustrated as we think, no, 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 no. This is not how it's supposed to work out. This is not how it's supposed to work out. I had it, I had it planned. Or, you mean I've wasted all my time, all this time, and for what? But if they, if by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see God's sovereign hand orchestrating all of our circumstances according to his plan, we can rest. We can really, truly rest in him. Knowing that he will work these things together for good, for our good, according to his purpose. His faith will never, 
his faithfulness never ends, never fails, and never wavers. His wisdom and goodness, his grace and resources are more than sufficient, more than sufficient, regardless of what you think, where you're at. His grace, his goodness, his mercy is more than sufficient for all our needs, every single one. So before I get into the word, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your amazing grace and your mercy toward us. Sinners, Lord God, but sinners saved by grace. Father, would you meet with us this morning, Lord? Would you pour out your spirit? Father, would you give us soft, fertile hearts to hear your words and to recognize that we live under the sovereign reign of an almighty good God who we call Father, Abba, you are good. You work all things out for our good. And Father, we worship you this morning and we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Amen. As I begin, um, I'm not going to be reading all of chapter 25. I'm just going to be going through certain portions, and I'm going to be expounding on certain passages of chapter 25. Okay? And last week, as you remember, I wasn't here last week, but I listened to your sermon, Pastor, three times. I did. I did. Three times. That's all. Yeah, 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 yeah. 37 minutes and... Uh, <laughs> Last week, we left Paul in Caesarea, where he had been held by Felix, the Roman governor, for some two years, because while he found nothing worthy of holding Paul in prison, he imprisoned him nonetheless. He found nothing worthy of Paul's death, but he held them there, because Scripture tells us he wanted a bribe. He wanted a bribe from Paul. He wanted a bribe from the Jews. But that bribe was not coming. It was not happening. If you recall last week's sermon, Caesar had replaced Felix with Portius Festus because Felix had allowed the Syrians to come through Jerusalem beating and plundering the Jews. Just, I mean, this guy Felix was a seriously rotten apple. He was a bad guy. And uh, Josephus... Um, expounds on that, but I'm not going to have time to do that. Um, as we get into chapter 25, Paul is now under the custody of the new Roman governor, Festus, and Paul again demonstrates that same commitment to live a life with a conscience that is clean before God and man, as well as taking advantage of every opportunity, whatever situation Paul found himself in, he took the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to guards, to fellow prisoners. And now we're going to see something take shape here that's going to blow us away. And um, so let's begin reading Acts 25, verses 1 through 5. And I think, it, yep, there it is. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. 
And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that the, he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So in previous chapters, we've already seen God God's providential hand at work protecting Paul from plots against his life. But there, here I should say, here we see it again, okay? Although God is not overtly seen, he is covertly at work, orchestrating circumstances and people to accomplish his sovereign purpose through the gospel. God was working all things together for good for Paul according to his purpose of being glorified through the gospel. This is the theme we're running into here, glorifying God through the gospel. And he would be doing so before, Gentile, before Gentiles, before kings, before magistrates, and before the Jewish people, all those who were trying to kill him. He was working to bring his apostle to Rome, where many in Caesar's household, and probably even Caesar himself, would get to hear the gospel. So we see that the moment Festus took, Festus rather, took office, the Jerusalem leaders, they were there. They were in his face. These guys, two years had passed, and they had not lost this anger, this bitterness, this hatred towards Paul. They wanted him dead. Why did they, him, why did they want him dead? Because Paul was relentless in proclaiming the gospel. The dude would not stop. It was just totally driving these Jewish leaders crazy. And so they go before Festus. And now Festus was clueless about Judaism, okay? Festus didn't have a clue about Jewish traditions, Jewish laws. And so to say the least, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he had unknowingly to him, he walked into a lion's den, a hornet's nest, if you will, okay? But he was soon, we're going to soon see Festus become the true politician that he is. He's going to flip-flop very soon here, okay? So we read in Paul's defense in, uh, on verses 6 to 12. Excuse me, my mouth is drying up real quick here. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Here we go. There it is. Festus, 
ready to flip-flop. Originally, he didn't want to go to Jerusalem. He wanted the Jews to come to Caesarea, where he could try and bring Paul to justice, whatever the case would be, okay? So as soon as Paul came in, the Jewish leaders began to accuse him before the governor with many serious charges, none of which they've been able to prove this whole time, okay? They were like a pack of hungry dogs. They, you have to picture it, okay? Paul walks in, and he's surrounded by these guys, and they're ready to maul him. And as I'm preparing for this, as I'm reading this, I can't help but think of our accuser constantly circling us, trying to devour us. Satan is always trying to bring a case against us, always digging up some, the same weak charges. He's always digging up them old dry bones, isn't he? But he can no longer stand in the presence of God to accuse us. Jesus, our advocate, has taken on himself all charges against us, every charge. We are no longer guilty. Wake up. You're no longer bound by those old sins. No longer, okay? His blood has cleansed and redeemed us. And Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to, in Romans 34, he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think about it. They didn't really hate Paul. Think about it. Paul used to be one of them. Paul, when he was doing their bidding, killing and persecuting Christians, he was the man. So here you see the animosity and their disdain. And why? Because God was being preached. Paul, I mean Christ was being preached. Paul was proclaiming the gospel. And in Matthew, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 10, 22? He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures, I'm oh, sorry, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm begging you, I'm asking you, stay the course. If you're, if you're struggling today, stay the course. <clears throat> Paul would not relent on preaching about the Messiah, the Christ, and fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. In him, and in him, Christ risen from the dead. So we move on, and we see in verse 8, Luke summarizes Paul's defense. Paul's defense refers to three alleged offenses. And Paul, Paul hit home with this. He wanted Festus to know, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. Now Festus was in a bond because Paul had not violated any Roman laws. 
And since he was a Roman citizen, Festus was responsible to protect him. Technically, he should have freed Paul since Paul had not violated any Roman law. But he can't dismiss these Jews and their intense hate for Paul. What is going on? I, I can't let this guy go. There's something going on, and he doesn't know what it is. Okay? So in verse 9, we see that Festus had to keep the peace and also maintain a certain level of acceptance with the Jewish leaders. As Festus weighed the political implications of the case before him, he realized that protecting Paul against these guys, it could be a very costly political move for him. Okay? And so he started trying to appease them. And in so doing, he failed desperately to carry out, carry out his duty as a governor. Okay? And so Festus proposed a compromise. Okay? Does that sound familiar? Hey, Paul, why don't we just go back to Jerusalem and take care of things over there? Okay? Wait a minute. Didn't Festus have the pass down from Felix, you know, about Paul, the ambush that was planned against Paul, how the Jews planned to kill him? Didn't he get a pass down? I believe Festus was aware of all these details. I think he knew. He knew. What you have here is a desperate politician, <laughs> okay? He's desperate right now. Paul's response should have not surprised him, okay? Paul, therefore, used his right as a Roman citizen to the full. If Festus would not do the right thing and pronounce him innocent, then Paul will exercise his right to appeal. Through this, God was sovereignly working out his apostle to go to Rome. I mean, it's, it's amazing how God is doing this thing. As Christians, we sometimes forget about our new citizenship, don't we? Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we, wait, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul goes on to say, as he continues the thought in chapter 4, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. And that's exactly what Paul does, okay, in verses 10 to 12, as we're going to read. He stands firm as he points out to Festus that he, he's already been tried. You've already, I've already been in, in, in the presence of the proper court. So there was no need for you to change venues. There's no need to take me to Jerusalem. I'm not going anyway because I know these guys are planning to kill me. So give it up, okay? And Paul points out once again that he had done nothing wrong. Listen, you got it all right there. I haven't done a single thing wrong. Nothing. So uh, to the Jews, and Festus was already, Festus already knew this. He was already aware of that fact. And in verse 11, Paul basically calls out Festus to make a judgment. Listen, you either find me guilty or not guilty, okay? I'm not going to Jerusalem. Listen up. I appeal to Caesar his right as a citizen, okay? And I can relate to people's rights as a citizen, being a naturalized citizen myself, you know, 
the right to vote. You, I mean, you, you anticipate this stuff. Some of you take it for granted, but there's a lot of people who are like, the right to vote, the right to have a federal job. I had a federal job, you know, top secret clearance, blah, 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 blah. You know, the right to become, you know, to become mayor, governor, not president, okay? Um, all these rights, and I have the right to appeal any judgment against me as a citizen. I have that right. I have that right to go all the way to the Supreme Court, if so be. And that's what Paul does. He takes advantage of his Roman citizenship, okay? He reminds Festus, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You know what? You're messing up. I'm appealing to Caesar. Now, at first, Festus is like, yes. Finally, getting rid of this guy. But it begins to dawn on him. Oops, I've messed up. Okay? No charges. Nothing. He was required to send with, with, Fest, I mean, with Paul to Caesar a list of all the charges. This is why I'm sending this guy to you. You know what? He didn't have that. He didn't have a single list of charges to send to Caesar. And so he's kind of anxious now. He's like, oh, wow, what am I going to do? And at this point, so when Paul ex exclaims, I appeal to Caesar, I, I can just picture Festus. Festus turns around to his boys better known as this council, okay? Uh, can, can he do that? They're like, yeah, yeah, he can do that. He's a, he's a Roman citizen, you know? And so the implications of Paul's appeal to Caesar, again, it just, it just, it hit, it hit him hard, okay? And lo and behold, we start to read in verse 13, 22, 13 through 22 of God's providence again, okay? And out of coincidence, here we go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and Festus greeted them, and greeted Festus, rather. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused, before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the men to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jew a certain Jesus, I should say, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss, again, he had no clue how to investigate these questions, 
I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, again, seemingly just a coincidence, all right, but it was one that Festus welcomed. Festus was like, yes, somebody who knows what's going on with these Jews, okay? Several days later, Festus gets the opportunity to confer with someone that might be able to help him figure out what to write to Caesar. King Agrippa II, along with his sister Bernice, arrived to welcome Festus. Herod Agrippa II reigned over the area of northeast of Judea, in the area where we know now as Syria, along with key cities and villages in Galilee and Perea. It would have been customary for the neighboring rulers to visit a new governor to welcome him and begin building a working relationship. Now these two visitors, they're interesting characters, okay? And if you read, you, you're gonna see that. I'm not gonna get into it, but they're interesting. And knowing a little about them sheds much light on the next chapter of Acts. And here, my friend, where are you? Oh, I see you, I'm not gonna say your name. Here, my friend, is where I begin to lay down the red carpet for you for next week. Okay, yeah, chapter 25 was really tough. I know you like chapter 26, so I'm gonna lay the carpet down for you so you can kind of like usher in to chapter 26 here, okay? Agrippa was the brother of Bernice and Drusilla, the wife of Felix, the previous governor. They were the children, and, keep, and see the connection here, okay? See how God has been working. They were the children of King Herod Agrippa I, who had ruled over Judea in AD 37 through 44, and had put the apostle James to death. They were the great-grandchildren of King Herod the Great through, which, through his Jewish wife, Miriam. Unfortunately, and this is where the interesting part comes in, okay, these two were a little bit more than brother and sister, all right? They were messed up, okay, to say the least. Their, their relationship was scandalous, to say the least. Agrippa had a Roman education, and this is where and this is where it comes in. Okay, this is why, <laughs> stop making me laugh, Pastor. <laughs> and this is why Festus was so excited, okay? Agrippa had a Roman education and a Jewish heritage and was considered an expert in Jewish affairs. So he would be an excellent person for Festus to question about Paul and what he should write to Caesar. Festus shared his predicament with Agrippa, and from his words to Agrippa, we learn some very important factors in his decision to persuade Paul to go to Jerusalem, okay? We learn, for example, that the charges which Festus heard or assumed from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were not the same charges which became the major issues in the trial. We also learn that Festus now understood the hostility that disdain that the Jews had toward Paul was based upon religious and theological issues, which means the gospel, and not on any infractions of any law, Jewish or Roman, 
Paul had not broken any laws, Jewish or Roman. Nobody, again, nobody has been able to prove that he did that. And we finally learned that Festus realized he was totally incompetent to judge this matter. And when the help came, he was grateful. So at this point, Agrippa's like, yeah, yeah, I want to hear this dude. Because you got to remember, Agrippa's like, oh, yeah, my dad, yeah, my ancestors have had dealings with this guy and his apostles. Yeah, let me hear this guy. I, I want to hear him. And much like his sister Drusilla had heard Paul in the previous years, Festus is excited. Maybe now he'll have something substantial to pen to Caesar. And so set, he sets the appointment for the next day. And so we read in 23 through 27. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Smooth talker. He knows that he needed this or he was going to be, at the very least, fired if he didn't have charges to present to Caesar, okay? Now, as I understand the argument in chapter 25, it is to show how God arranged, sovereignly arranged opportunities and an audience for the proclamation of the gospel. This is what's building up. This is what has built up as we've read through. And now in chapter 25, this is where it's starting to surface. And we're starting to see how God has sovereignly arranged an audience for Paul to proclaim the gospel as recorded in chapter 26, my friend. The events of chapter 25 set the scene for Paul's preaching. As God's divine plan is worked out, Paul will be given the opportunity to speak in defense, in his defense, but we know that he will respond by boldly, boldly proclaiming the gospel. And again, his audience is much larger than just the governor of Festus. In addition, you have Agrippa and Bernice. You have Roman military commanders and a large number of prominent people, okay? And we see that in verse 23. This is a bigger collection of movers and shakers that Paul could even ever have imagined or could have in the time that he's had to put together. God has sovereignly arranged for Paul to present the gospel to these prominent people. And in Romans 1, 11, 30 through 36, for example, we read, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of your disobedience. 
So they who have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. God has consigned all in his disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and, his, and unscrutable, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and in him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul has already stood before Claudius, Lysias, and Felix, and now Festus. And in the next chapter, again, in chapter 26, we're going to see him stand before King Agrippa and Bernice. And before long, Paul is going to be standing before Caesar. God is keeping his promise to Paul. Okay, But notice how the promise of God pertaining to Paul's mission and ministry is being fulfilled. It is not through one event only or through one person. It is by means of God's orchestration, again, of a host of people. God orchestrates. I can't stress this enough. God orchestrates in our lives everything for his glory. His glory. From a human standpoint, one could look at the events of Paul's arrest and numerous, numerous trials as a comedy of errors. But in, as our chapter unfolds, Paul is given the opportunity to proclaim his faith apart from the courtrooms, the constraints of the courtrooms, and the opposition of the Jews. And while Paul's audience begins with only Festus, it continues to grow throughout the chapter by what seems to be a coincidental, coincidental dropping in of King Agrippa and Bernice until you have an auditorium full of dignitaries and now Paul is ready. The point I'm trying to make is simply this, the greatest opportunities for ministry often come dressed in a form of failure, of frustrating, painful circumstances where we seem to be very limited. It is not until the end of chapter 26 that we begin to see how the hand of God has been behind all the painful and the frustrating events. God was at work here causing all things to work together for the good to them who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I ask you, do our lives lack the typical indicators of success and significance? So did Paul's. Do we sometimes feel like we have been taken out of action. We feel numb. We feel like, you know what, I'm not worthy. I've messed up. Do you feel that you've been taken out of, out of action for the gospel? It is not until the end, oh, I'm sorry. Does it seem that you have been hemmed by your circumstances? Well, then consider Paul. His life seemed to have been put on hold for two years. He was for two years, he was confined in prison. For two years, he had been kept from traveling to those churches he had helped to establish, those churches he had planted. 
two seemingly wasted years, but look at the fruit which God brought out of these frustrations and seeming failures. Paul could have worked for two years to get an appointment but with but a few of those gathered in the auditorium. Who would have thought that being falsely accused, beaten, arrested, and then wrongly detained would have been the means of gaining such an audience? I think when we look back at our lives from the vintage point of eternity, we will see that many of the most significant ways God has been able to use us for, our, for his glory are very much like the way in which he used Paul and Acts. God would not only fulfill his promises in the, in and through us, but he would do so in a way where he, he gets the glory and the praise and that we will fall before him in wonder and in worship. The disasters of our lives, like those which befell Paul and other biblical saints, are the materials with which God builds his program. This is how God does his thing, okay? He uses all our mess-ups. And you know what? He's going to use them anyway. Don't get stuck in your mess-ups, okay? Move on, Christian. Move on, brother and sister. The disaster. Um, we should not dread disaster and difficulty when God allows them our way, for he will cause, again, all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I've repeated that at least three times. He's doing that, okay? What a comfort to us to live in a fallen, who live in a fallen, chaotic world which seems to be unguided, okay, and un uncontrolled. This world is spinning out of control, but what a comfort to know that we serve a sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, behind the chaos, behind all the chaos that you're taking in, and I'm begging you, don't let the chaos take over you, okay, because behind it all, God is a sovereign God who is able to use man's best efforts as well as his worst to achieve his purpose. God, in his wisdom, will guide us through every circumstance we face. But we must, we must surrender to his will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your sovereignty in our lives. We thank you for the pains, Lord God, which pull us and draw us closer to you. Father, we thank you that you are working your good and sovereign will in our lives according to your purpose, Lord, because we're your children. Father, I thank you for the heart out there today, Lord whom you've reassured, you are my child. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You promised that, Lord. And so, Father, this morning or this afternoon, we say thank you for being sovereign in our lives. Father, help us. Help us to step back 
to step back and, and out of ourselves, Lord God, and to allow you to do what you will. And we will give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.